It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. There's a radio show in America, and this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, that has spent more time uh, and more hours exploring the UAP issue and the issue of extraterrestrials than this one. However, a lot of the time, the researchers in this field, the leading uh, writers in this field, tend to be people that aren't necessarily taken that seriously in the scientific community. But something interesting has happened in the last few years. We're seeing Congress actually hold hearings on the UAP issue. We're seeing serious mainstream news organizations like the New York Times, like CBS News, like 60 Minutes, like Fox News and CNN, all look seriously at the issue of UAPs. Well, where are we going Dr. Jensen Andresen is a member of the research team of the Galileo Project at Harvard and the editor of the new book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. Now, whatever your level of skepticism of, or belief when it comes to UAPs, I think if you think about the societal and academic implications of something as groundbreaking as communications with extraterrestrial uh, intelligence, that is just limitless in its possibility. I want to welcome uh, Dr. Andresen to the program. Uh, Dr. Andresen, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, thank you so much, Frank. And please just call me Jensen. I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate that. Thank you, Jensen. Um, let's, before we talk about your book, just to give folks a little bit of perspective as to who you are, you've got um, a lot of postgraduate degrees from some of the most revered academic institutions in the country, but you're a member of the research team of the Galileo Project at Harvard. What is the Galileo Project? What do you guys do there? Okay, so um, uh, first I'll make uh, a comment, which is my interview with you and everything I say in the interview is, you know, really my own opinion. So I'm not tonight going to be speaking sure, on sure. behalf of the guy. I just need to put that Got caveat it. out there front and center. However, the Galileo Project is an incredibly exciting endeavor. It was started by Professor Avi Loeb and um, Frank Laukian and those are the two co-founders of the project. And essentially, the impetus was 
let's have our own data collection effort. So we're not dependent upon the government to provide data for scientists to analyze. Because who knows how long that could take? I mean, for various, some of them incredibly good reasons, uh, classification, sensitivity of sources and methods, instrumentation, all that sort of thing, the government may not want to release the data that it has. And so Avi, he was like, hey, you know, we know how to build in- instruments. We're astronomers. We can, not, all, not that all of us are astronomers, but why don't we just collect our own data and analyze that? So that was the impetus behind the project. And so it's, it's an incredible group of people I'm from all over the world, some of the best engineers I've ever seen. So I'm really privileged. Well, to that's terrific. Uh, no, that we're lucky that you're doing that, that work. So let's talk about this book that you've uh, helped to edit, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Social Implications. You've got a lot of different perspectives on uh, a very controversial, very interesting subject here. A lot of very well-respected people as writers in this book. What was the impetus for this book? What, um, what are you guys hoping to achieve by compiling all these different perspectives on the question of extraterrestrial intelligence? Right, exactly. So I'm the lead editor. It was my idea. What I really wanted to do was broaden the conversation. I felt that after the 2017 New York Times article that really 95, 99% of the conversation was from a national security perspective. I mean, if that was real and, you know, governmental kind of idea. And, and I felt that a lot of the talking points were being repeated across platforms, across different media outlets. And I thought it was time to kind of open the conversation up because this topic is so enormous. And as you said, I mean, just you hit the nail on the head, the, the implications are so far reaching that I thought it made sense to have, number one, an international group of people talking about it, which is why I really went out of my way to invite people from different countries to contribute to the book, but also to look at it from a multidisciplinary perspective. So what might a scientist say? What might an astronomer say? What, what, you know, what does a philosopher have to say about the topic? Um, and so that, that was basically the idea. And uh, you, one of the areas that I find so fascinating is what it does to theology. Uh, and you explore it from a, not only a philosophical, a scientific, and uh, a mathematical, but also a theological point of view. And there's some terrific essays in here. Uh, one of the one of the chapters that uh, that you've written for this book is Mind of the Matter, Matter of the Mind, and it's a chapter that considers the academic and societal implications of creative acculturation with extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, for those of us without multiple postgraduate degrees from Ivy League schools, what exactly is uh, creative acculturation, Jensen? Well, can I just, Frank, say thank you? Uh, you read the chapter. <laughs> I did indeed. I always try to you do that. You did. I can tell that you did because um, – a lot of people, you know, don't. They read the title and, and go to the next thing. So thank you so much. That means a lot to me. So, yeah, that was – so most people are familiar with the idea of cultural assimilation. And I really didn't want to use that word 
assimilation. So assimilation would be, and, and okay, we need to, what I was doing is I was differentiating the intra-species situation from an inter-species situation. So intra meaning within. So most people think about assimilation within the human species. So we have all of these examples historically of a dominant culture assimilating into itself smaller cultures, indigenous cultures, let's say. We, we know all about that from the history of humankind, right? And, and usually the culture that might have the most weapon systems, might be the most fierce militarily, um, will have the ability to assimilate into itself the less dominant cultures within our own species at an intra-species level. But my thought was, I don't think that's at all what's going on here. So at an inter, meaning between different species level, when you have two incredibly intelligent species, how might that process of coming together look? And so again, I didn't want to use that word assimilation, so I used acculturation. Because I think if you look at the history of this topic, and, and there, it has a long history, this did not just start with the Nimitz encounter in 2004, not by any stretch of the imagination. We have a very good accounts, historical record going back to the late 1700s, the early 1800s, there's just so much, and that's just within the United States. But if you look across cultures in the literature, let's say it's ancient Sanskrit literature, I, I, I can read Sanskrit a little bit. It's tough, but I muddle my way through. Anyway, if you look back at that literature, we have accounts going back over a thousand years. And what I have noticed is that it's not like a, a dominance thing. It's not that this intelligence is just assimilating humankind into its way of doing things. Not at all. It's very gradual. It's very gentle. It's very um, reciprocal. And so that's, that's the idea about cultural uh, acculturation creative acculturation, as I say. And it was my idea to introduce that notion so that we could talk about it in a way that didn't immediately reduce the conversation to, you know, is it a threat or not? You know, I, I, if, since you've read the chapter, you know I think it is not. But I wanted people to realize that you can't extrapolate from what has happened between two human cultures to what is going on now between humankind and this extraterrestrial intelligence. In the chapter, you do say that uh, you don't think all UAPs are extraterrestrial in nature, but you do think 
uh, citing some of the uh, historical examples that you just alluded to, that you do think that uh, many of them throughout history are extraterrestrial in nature. And you get into what uh, some top-level people in the government, presidents, heads of the uh, CIA, heads of, um, you know, the director of national intelligence, and you get into what they've sought to do and what they've um, said publicly on the issue of UAPs. One of the things that I find really divides people that are believers that uh, that extraterrestrials have made trips here is the level of what they believe the government's knowledge is. Based on your research and based on your looking at this, are you of the belief that there is sort of a fifth column within the government that is keeping this information from getting out there? Or do you believe that the government is just as naive as uh, as we might be on this issue? I think that you can't, the government is not a monolithic entity. So what we need to do, I think, to explore that question, which is, you know, fantastic question, is to look at different branches of the government and different entities within the government to determine what one may know and what one may not know. So, for example, let's just start with what most people are familiar with, which is ODNI, the Office Director of National Intelligence, and its recent efforts on behalf of this topic. And so I would say, and again, these are very, you know, this is very much my personal opinion, that ODNI and certain higher echelons within the Department of Defense, because as you know, ODNI, um, Avril Haines, is working with Kathleen Hicks at the Department of Defense. They're kind of in alignment with one another. I think that at that level, there is not that much knowledge of this topic. And, you know, they may have some data, they may have some videos, but in terms of a deep knowledge or any real careful analysis, I think they're at the beginning stages. However, I do think that historically speaking, CIA has had a lot of information on this topic and that probably within the CIA somewhere, there's going, not across the board, but there's probably some sort of legacy analytical endeavor with respect to data that was collected all the way back at least to the 40s, if not to the 1930s, because even in the 30s, and I point this out in the book, or in that chapter, which is that even within ufology, there has been a narrative that has said that really this started in the 40s when humankind exploded the first atomic bomb. And that's when you start to see a lot more UAP activity. And There is some truth to that, but there's also a lot of evidence from the 1930s, especially in Scandinavia. And there have been a few researchers out there who have done tireless work with FOIA getting government documents declassified. and, And you can really see the documentary evidence of some high-level, like FBI, CIA-type knowledge of what was going on in Scandinavia. So I do think that there's more knowledge probably within CIA, 
and of course within the Air Force for a lot of different reasons. If, and you, I'm sorry. Go I'm, ahead. I'm, I, no, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just, no, I'll stop, please. No, I, I was just going to remind the audience we're talking with uh, Dr. Jensine Andresen. Uh, she is uh, an editor and one of the authors of the book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. There are some fascinating chapters in this book looking at the question of extraterrestrial communication and interaction from every different perspective that you can imagine. And uh, there's now a paperback version of the book that's available. When this book first came out, it was very pricey. It was geared mainly towards academics, but now it's uh, been priced more towards uh, consumers, and I think that's a great thing because it'll get more people reading this. Uh, now, Jensine, we do have a lot of skeptics in our audience as well. You, you've alluded in our conversation and in the chapter that you wrote, Mind of the Matter, Matter of the Mind, that there's substantial evidence to suggest that a lot of these UAP experiences have been extraterrestrial in nature. Uh, you mentioned the Nimitz in uh, 2004. You alluded to 1947 when the uh, Roswell incident occurred. What else is there in terms of evidence that you can point a skeptic to as uh, conv- convincing or compelling proof that extraterrestrials have been to this planet? You know, I don't personally put a lot of emphasis on Roswell. So I have that that story has gone through so many iterations and a lot of people have weighed in and it's not something that I've spent sufficient amount of time studying to have a very clear picture of what's going on with the Roswell incident, which is very different from me saying I disbelieve that it occurred. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just certainly not an expert on Roswell. Um, I think that some of the most compelling accounts that I have seen is a a whole bunch of literature having to do with, back in the 30s, what were called ghost flyers. And those were primarily in Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. But there were also a few ghost flyer incidents even in the United States. Some of those accounts I find very, very credible and very compelling. And then there's a whole slate, I mean, just really well-documented government documentation having to do with what was occurring in the 40s, mostly in the United States, and mostly in conjunction or in proximity to nuclear installations. So all kinds of green fireballs, which professional scientists of the caliber of you know, Oppenheimer said these are not meteors. And so, for example, in the 40s in Los Alamos, they created a study group made up of scientists holding, you know, classified, you know, very highly credentialed people that had been working on the bomb project. And to to study all of these incidents that were occurring near nuclear installations and the individuals that comprise that study group all scientists, all with classifications, um, said this is these are not meteors, but we we don't know what they are. So that I that whole decade I find very interesting. And then you know even in I, I kind of wanted to go back and and do a real quick run through what's occurred at the level of government sure, you know, just since twenty twenty. So and then I'm gonna go back to the other half of the answer to your question. So 
just so we're all on the same page, I just think this is really important. So I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. So August 14, 2020, that's when the Department of Navy established the UAP task force. And at that point in time, the acronym UAP was Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, right? Okay. A little over a year later, November 23rd, 2021, DOD established the Airborne Object Identification Management Synchronization Group with the completely unpronounceable acronym AOIMSG. And when AOIMSG was established, UAPTF was disestablished because I've heard a lot of people make a mistake about that in podcasts. They're like, oh, now it's dueling organizations, the and, UAPTF on the one hand and AIMSOG on the other. And, and, and Jinsen, we, we are going to have to bring the conversation to oh, a sure. close in about, in about a minute, but I'm fascinated. <laughs> oh, okay. I know we've, we've only scratched the surface. Maybe we could continue the conversation uh, next week, but if you wanted to just put a button on the government aspect of what you were alluding to here, please do, and then we'll continue the conversation uh, next week or the week after that if we can. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So then July 20th, 2022, AOIMSG was renamed to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO, which remains today in operation and is the lead with Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, very well-credentialed gentleman, used to be chief scientist at DIA's Missile and Space Intelligence Center, heading that up. And then only a few weeks ago, December 17, they renamed the acronym from Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon to Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon. And then if I've got 20 seconds left, the two pieces of legislation that have intersected with this are the NDAA for fiscal year 2022, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, and then the NDAA for fiscal year 2023, which was just passed, and Section 1683 in the former and Section 1663 in the latter. So that's our recent history. And so that kind of sets the table for what government does or does not know and which branches do or do not know what they do mm-hmm. or do not know. Uh, Jen Seen, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I yep. really appreciate the conversation. I want to sure. encourage people to check out the book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. Dr. Jen Seen Andresen, let's talk again soon. Thanks, Frank. Take Thank care. you. If Bye-bye. you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 